0: I would argue at least 50% of the market is almost completely priced out. Wow,
1: 50% of the market is priced out of the car industry.
0: Yeah, if you think about the retail vehicle market, the most important number is the Mm -hmm. monthly payment. 100%. When you look at what households in the US, the distribution of their incomes, about half can only afford about a $400.
1: What's up everyone, this is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Jonathan Smoke is the chief economist of Cox Automotive, a subsidiary of the $20 billion Cox Enterprises. In this episode, we discuss the state of auto lending and what's to come, how interest rates are impacting the car industry, the number one issue for car shoppers right now, the best and worst car deals on the market, what a UAW strike could mean for the auto industry, winners and losers in the EV space, and will used car prices go back to normal anytime soon. But before we dive into the show, theft is plaguing dealerships nationwide, losing car keys is an unneeded cost, and searching for keys can lead to bottlenecks in the sales process. Keeper Systems has the solution for dealers. The Keeper MX is the number one key control solution in the auto industry, handling millions of transactions per day. It features a 16-gauge steel cabinet with a built-in camera and a puck lock for additional safety, along with many other features so that dealers can know who took a key, when and why. Keeper Systems has been in the auto industry for over 40 years and is at over 12,000 dealerships, offering exclusive key control for 6 out of 10 biggest automotive groups in the world. They have a wide range of products that fit the needs of franchise dealers, independent dealers, and even the smallest pre-owned lots. New customers can take advantage of my partnership with Keeper Systems right now to receive an exclusive discount. All you need to do is visit KeeperSystems.com, click on the Car Dealership Guy link, and fill out the form to receive 25% off your first key machine purchase. Or if you prefer to call, just mention Car Dealership Guy to receive your discount. KeeperSystems.com, K-E-Y-P-E-R-Systems.com. All right, folks. We got Jonathan Smoke on the pod from Cox Automotive, or as they call him in the streets, DJ Smoky Smoke. <laughs> it's good to see you again, CDG. You too. Thanks for coming on. The most creative economist I've ever met. So pumped for this one. People are probably wondering what's DJ Smoky Smoke. Well, you should have listened to the first episode uh, <laughs> where we gave some context on your DJing career. So it's a low bar for uh,
0: the world of economists, uh, you know, to be entertaining <laughs> and creative. But I try. I try to
1: keep up. Well, look, we have a lot to cover. Haven't done a deep economy, just industry segment since our podcast, really. And so I think kind of to lay the land for a second, and I'll let you introduce yourself to all of our new listeners. Uh, but I, it feels like it's been a lifetime since our last episode of what's changed in the industry. In reality, it hasn't been that long. It's been a couple of months. But since then, you know, just to give a preview, we've seen new car sales continue to rise year over year. We've seen used car prices kind of decline and then increase just a little bit. Now we're seeing these potential strikes in Detroit with the United Auto Workers, specifically strikes that could potentially impact production for Stellantis, Ford, GM. We're seeing Elon Musk and Tesla cut prices on their EVs, new cars, like 20%. I mean, just crazy price cuts overnight. And this was super recent, a couple of days ago or so, a week ago. So we still have yet to feel the impact there, but there's so much going on. It's going to be a very juicy episode. Before we get into that, can you give our new listeners, can you give us your background and exactly what you do? Sure. So,
0: I'm the chief economist for Cox Automotive. For folks not familiar with Cox Automotive, we are the largest uh, services company for the auto space. Uh, we basically uh, have some familiar brand names to consumers, like Auto Trader and Kelly Blue Book, uh, where consumers go to shop and learn about vehicle values uh, and the like. We uh, have the top one, two, or three software platforms that dealers use to manage uh, all aspects of their business from CRM to inventory management to the backend DMSs. Uh, so our bread and butter software businesses are, are very much focused on supporting dealers. And as a result, I work with dealers day in and day out. And then most people know me because of the Mannheim index. So we own Mannheim Auto Auctions, the world's largest wholesale uh, marketplaces. Folks that listen to the podcast, you mentioned going to Mannheim PA on a, on a regular basis, and what a trip that is uh, in terms of where it's located and what that what that's like. So, you know, I've been a I've been in a role as a chief economist at, in the housing industry and now in the automotive industry, and I came to Cox six and a half years ago, leaving behind my background in in housing to get into automotive as a new learning opportunity for me, but really to leverage the vast amount of information that we have at our disposal uh, to really get to uh, understand and know this business. So bottom line, what I do day in and day out is to try to make sense of what's happening in the world and, and specifically relating that to trends we're seeing in the auto market, because I'm trying to help people make good decisions. And that includes manufacturers, dealers, and lenders and consumers alike. So I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, I too am learning. So I want to continue to contribute
1: to this world. I love it. Uh, did you see my long form post? Is that what you're referring to about the Mannheim trip? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. I'm glad because it's funny. Um, I was thinking to tee up the Holland's Head podcast, you know, largest wholesaler in the world. And I was thinking about, you know, what? like what's better than to just illustrate kind of what that experience was like starting out. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like off the whim. I didn't really plan or anything, but it was funny. I ended up striking a chord with lots of people. So that was awesome. All right. So give us like the 4,000 foot overview of like what is going on right now in, in the car industry in general.
0: Yeah, well, there's always something going on. <laughs> and, and you know, we last talked just about three months ago and and I totally agree with you that several things are changing or have changed in that time. Fundamentally, if I take a step back, I would say, that we're increasingly seeing the auto market move towards normalization and balance. You know, we've basically been in a world where the decline in new vehicle production from every factory in the world being shut down back in 2020 and then all of the crazy supply chain issues that happened as as the manufacturers tried to get back up online meant that we have been severely undersupplied in first the new vehicle market, but now that's cascading into the used vehicle market because the absence of new vehicle sales for three years in a row constrains substantially what can happen in wholesale and and in the used retail market. Um, So we've had a lot of abnormal trends. We've had demand exceeding supply, so that caused tremendous price inflation, uh, first on the used vehicle side, and then that cascaded into new. And this year is starting to see pricing come down again. Uh, Of course, you're dealing with the economy and the issues facing the economy with inflation and then the medicine being doled out by the Federal Reserve uh, that includes uh, monetary tightening and most importantly, substantial increases in interest rates. So you combine uh, price increases with the higher interest rates and tighter credit we have a real affordability challenge uh, in both the new and the used market that limits demand. And it's helped produce some of the normalization we're seeing because there are, uh, I would argue, at least 50% of the market is is almost completely priced out of being able to wow. buy the way that they uh, traditionally Wait, would. So um,
1: what do you mean by that? 50% of the market is priced out of the car industry? What do you, what's yeah, the
0: I mean, at the end of the day, if you think about retail, uh, the retail vehicle market, it is a financing market. People, the, the most important number is the monthly payment. Is it 100%. And uh, when you look at what the household, uh, households in the U.S., the distribution of their incomes, uh, about half can only afford about a $400 payment. And it is really difficult to produce a $400 payment in either the new or the used market today because of the combination of vehicle prices and and interest rates and um, So it ends up being a market. that's largely it's a you, you get a tale of two different stories left and right uh, I would argue consumers are living in two very different worlds where high-income consumers that own homes and lock down very low interest rate mortgages uh, are, are uh, enjoying almost the best of times because they've got low debts uh, that they're paying. And, and uh, at the end of the month, they're seeing their stocks go up in most months and home values go up. And, and it's a really positive story. Uh, the other end of the income spectrum, you basically see consumers who spend more than half of their budgets on three things, food, energy, and shelter, and those things That's where we've had the most inflation. And so they've been experiencing tremendous inflation and just trying to make ends meet. Um, But those consumers tend to be consumers that traditionally drive the used car market and are a substantial portion of what we call subprime in the credit space. And so uh, they're seeing interest rates that are north of 22% these days. And it's really hard to get a $400 payment on any vehicle that
1: you can actually get financed. So with all that said right now, let's just start with used for a second, right? Yeah. I saw, I always saw this chart. I forget who put it out. It pretty much showed this like like hypothetical like underproduction of vehicles since 2020, right? It was like, you know, we've underproduced 8.5 million vehicles since 2020. And all it's doing is going by what we should have sold in normal times versus what we actually sold. And it's also not perfect because people are holding their cars longer and whatnot. But When you look at something like that, and given the fact that, you know, inventory used cars are still at historical lows, or at least for a certain period of time, which I'm sure you could provide more data than I can, how are used car prices rising again as of like past month? Like what's going on right now, you know, with interest rates and everything and people being priced out, how are prices going up again, at least on the use side? Well, we're fundamentally very constrained. Um, So to the point
0: of the people who have have focused on the underproduction that we've had, think about it this way. Prior to the pandemic, we basically had a car park that was growing by about 5 million units per year. We were adding 4 to 5 million units, uh, and that's the difference between the new vehicle production and sales that happen in the new market. Minus the vehicles we lose, what we refer to as scrappage in in the industry. So the net effect
1: was yes, we were growing the car park by four or five million. So so, and give me like rough numbers. How many cars are operated in the, in the U.S. nowadays? Like about two hundred eighty million. Okay, two hundred eighty million, and if we were selling what like eighteen million new per year, seventeen million. Yeah. We were selling north of 17 million for almost a full decade leading Got up to the pandemic. Okay. Which means that, and then you're saying we're scrapping like 12 million or so, we're kind of going out of operation.
0: Yes. And so we've had several years through the pandemic, actually the first two years of the pandemic, car park shrank uh, because we actually lost more vehicles than we were bringing into the market as new. We've basically in three and a half years, we've added About a million vehicles when normally we would have added, by this point, about 15 million. Um, So
1: everything is just like out of equilibrium at that point.
0: And then, uh, throw on top of that, we've actually had a shift in where people live and their preferences for transportation. Plus, we had two years of what we can characterize as the free money years, both in terms of stimulus and interest rates being rock bottom. Uh, So you actually had stronger demand than normal
1: for the last four years. uh, Tell me more about, you said preferences in transportation, like what changed? What do people want now that they didn't, you know, three, four, five years ago?
0: Well, first, obviously, when COVID was uh, was a major concern, there was an enormous shift of people no longer wanting to share transportation. So public transportation fell dramatically. Uh, even ride hailing fail uh, dramatically, you really had a preference for, I want to be in my own uh, vehicle. I want want to be in my own bubble. But then on top of that, when people started primarily working from home and uh, driving more of a, what is still today a very much a hybrid work situation, people were starting to migrate and look to own uh, houses in places that were more affordable or more enjoyable. So you've seen a mass migration from high population, dense areas like New York City, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, to secondary markets and and more rural locations that are absolutely more private transportation- (laughs) A specific. De-urbanization, yeah. Yeah. And so the vehicle has become even more important um, to households. And I would argue their use cases, which used to be a lot simpler. Most mileage being put on cars pre-pandemic was driven by your daily, weekly commute. Today, the commute is more complicated and for some folks isn't even an, an issue and instead you've got a model where i don't have a daily driver anymore i have a vehicle that i need to drive to work a couple of times a week but then i also need to haul my family around or i need to be able to tow up a boat on the weekend you know every couple of weeks or whatever the situation i would argue the use cases for consumers have gotten more complicated too from a vehicle standpoint so we had a tremendous amount of people back in 2020 and 21 when they were getting stimulus money, when interest rates were zero or near zero, and the lowest that we've ever seen, uh, basically changing vehicles, both new and used. Uh, best best retail sales ever were in 2021, um, and mostly driven by the volumes we had in the used vehicle market. <laughs> uh, but then last year, that started to come to a screeching halt because one, pricing started to go up dramatically in both 2020 and 2021. Um, but then you had the Fed
1: raising interest rates and that really started to change the story. So so how have interest rates most impacted the industry, would you say? Like someone asked me today, someone was like, hey, so interest rates rising, like, so what, are people's monthly payments changing? I said, well, no. I said, it doesn't affect it that way, uh, but it's affecting in other ways, right? Suddenly you have to pay more for that house. And so I'm curious from your take, What is the impact of these interest rates, right? And will it be like short-lived, long-lived? Like, can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure, and that's a great point.
0: It does not, in the auto market, much like the U.S. housing market, which by the way is relatively unique in the world, people are not subject to variable rates on the vast majority of of loans that they have. So rising interest rates basically only impact new buyers. They don't uh, impact existing buyers. However, in the vehicle market, most people who are buying a vehicle are selling a vehicle. So you you have a, lock, you have a potential lock-in effect that what we may see is a much more muted uh, amount of demand out there because people net-net will look at their situation and say, I can't really improve my vehicle circumstance because my payment's going to go up uh, so much. You can't, you can't really figure out the calculus that will drive it. So it's more a limiter on what we can sell now versus what we could sell before. And where we see that most evident is again with consumers who are facing the biggest affordability challenges, uh, which are principally uh, lower credit quality uh, consumers. And we've effectively seen subprime almost disappear from the new vehicle market. And in the used market, we've lost about 5% 5% of the
1: market that used to exist. So you literally Does have Does that matter? Is that 5% that's like a fringes, or is that like a 5% that has no other options? Like to, what, how important is that 5%? Uh, well, I would say it's important. It's it's materially important. And it's
0: especially a, a good reason why when you look at our surveys of dealers and our dealer sentiment, uh, which, which we're rolling out the third quarter of this this month it's why persistently franchise dealers have been more positive about the whole economy and the auto market and specifically the used vehicle market than we see from independents independents and those who service more of the credit challenged consumer have seen the biggest struggles and some of it's inventory related too i'm not dismissing that there's there's also an issue with what vehicles uh, are available and at at what price, but credit plays an enormous role in that. Give
1: us an update on the inventory situation, new car side for a second, right? People ask me, they're like, hey, like, why can't I still get a a Toyota? Why can't I get a Honda? But I can get a Chrysler Pacifica. So give us a, why are some manufacturers still dealing with supply issues three and a half years later? I mean, come on, like, something doesn't make sense. Walk us through that.
0: Well, it hasn't been an even tide. Um, And so largely what we were seeing last year in particular was that uh, European brands and Asian brands were far more likely to still have lingering supply chain issues. Um, And in particular, the brands that we saw that were furthest behind were indeed the Japanese brands, um, with Toyota being the most uh, high profile one uh, that seemed to be behind everyone else in seeing the recovery. And it was a litany of, of bad luck. Um, basically, there was an earthquake early in, in 2022 that set Toyota back specifically. It also impacted one of their major sources of semiconductors. So while others were solving their computer chip problems, Toyota was actually having newer ones uh, last year. We, the lingering issues in Europe were mostly related to disruptions from the war in Ukraine. Uh, which you don't hear about vehicles being assembled in Ukraine. We don't have a single vehicle sold in the U.S. that is impacted directly by Russia and Ukraine. But Ukraine played a pretty important role, kind of like Mexico does for some of our vehicle production, where significant portions of the vehicle, like wire harnessing, uh, was done there. And obviously that was disrupted, but it was also the disruption of fuel and and other um, kind of costs in Europe that caused some of those supply chain issues. But flash forward to now, uh, even Toyota is very close. In fact, I think they set a world record uh, for themselves in July for the amount of vehicles that they produced across all their factories globally. So I think we are finally at the end of the, the more significant supply chain issues. Just in time for a strike. Were actually multiple strikes to start
1: unfolding, and in, well, in this well month. I I want to jump into that, but before we get into that, one more quick question on Toyota. So, do you think from here, do you think we're going to see again, all else being equal, right? There can always be some black swan event, uh, but do you think all else being equal, are we going to start seeing prices start to improve on Toyota, these the Asian brands? Yeah, I think we're moving
0: towards normalization, and normalization will mean more inventory. Uh, that higher inventory is going to be more incentives. Um, that is going to mean a return to discounting rather than paying above MSRP. We've already seen that for the brands that are more well-supplied, but we're still, I think the average gap between what a consumer is paying to the sticker price or the MSRP is less than 1% uh, so far this year uh, when we were consistently experiencing 6 to 8% discounts pre-pandemic. Oh, got um, it. So we, so we will be seeing steps towards that direction. Do we get all the way back to what it was before? Uh, that's, that's a matter of debate um, because some would argue that because we can sell more vehicles on order um, and the approach that many manufacturers are going to try to take to do more regional distribution that we may net net never get back to quite the same number of, of vehicles sitting on dealer lots. If I had, you know, I, as an economist, I don't feel strongly around the arguments of why can that happen simply because manufacturers will, quote unquote, be disciplined. Um, this is an industry that has high fixed costs with different uh, global and uh, kind of company specific strategies. It only takes one player uh, to, to push the entire industry in the wrong direction. And Exhibit A is not so much one player, but if you look how quickly inventories have grown this year and how fast incentives have followed. I mean, incentives in August, we just got the numbers this morning, incentives were up over 100% year over year. Um, So it it isn't, even though inventory levels are still relatively constrained, as you you were pointing out, we're already seeing, um, you know, that Manufacturers are really working hard to make the most out of the situation, and
1: but, but those inventory levels are where are they? Is it, isn't it mostly domestic brands like GM, Ford, Stellantis? Yeah. So when you look at it,
0: it's more than it's more the domestic brands that are more likely to be normally supplied or close to being, in some cases, oversupplied. But there's also segment level di- differences. Like I would say, one of the things that's become absolutely clear since our podcast is that, uh, we've hit the first speed bump in electric vehicle a- adoption, uh, on the new vehicle side. So that's the one. W- what piece do you mean by that? That su- supply is building up rapidly of electric
1: vehicles relative to the rest of the market. Um, if you so can- tell us more there. Like what, what are you actually seeing? Like they supply. And also, I'm curious if you're seeing that for everyone, excluding Tesla.
0: Yes. And in fact, most of the data we put out and we put out regular information in terms of I do a biweekly video uh, and then we do some detailed inventory reports using our V-Auto platform. And V-Auto is, is uh, the top industry source of of inventory management for dealers. So a, a lot of folks worldwide swear by uh, Dale Pollack and, and uh, his philosophies with uh, Velocity and inventory pricing and management. And so we basically have the tools that let us track it. We do not have Tesla in our numbers. So what what we're seeing Why? in the data, because Tesla is not a dealer customer uh, first and foremost. So we don't have Tesla actively participating in that platform to give us visibility in the, into a hundred percent of their inventory and, and how they are pricing uh, that inventory. And the second is they're much more difficult to relative compared to traditional dealers in terms of their approach to advertising specifically what they have available to sell. Essentially, what I would describe as what, what's behind our numbers is if a VIN is being actively advertised as available, then it's in our in- inventory numbers. So there's, there's sort of no question. You can drill down to the make model and specific vehicle to know where it is and uh, at what price and, and ultimately who, who's selling it. Um, so our numbers track the industry numbers extremely closely. Um, and, you know, we, I look at it actually every single day, but we, we share results sort of weekly. And, and so back to the theme that we were describing, if you look in aggregate for the new vehicle market this year, day supply has gone sideways to slightly down. And day supply is simply the total inventory level divided by the active current sales base. And we use a simple rolling 30-day sales base. The industry does, uh, when manufacturers report their numbers, they do a more, I'll say, sophisticated calculation where they take into account the number of selling days in the month. And uh, it basically reduces the day supply a little bit more aggressively than what our numbers do. But nonetheless, what we were seeing in the trend was day supply has been coming down all year long or at worst gone sideways, which means that despite inventories growing and inventories have been up consistently about 80% year over year so far this year.
1: Is that easy inventory or total new car inventories?
0: Total new car inventories. What are sitting on dealer lots, what are actively being uh, marketed Mm -hmm. uh, to to, 80% year over year. And what are the what are the actual numbers? Uh, currently, Roughly. we're we were right around two million uh, total
1: new vehicle units sitting on dealer lots. Okay, two million. That's up eighty percent year over year. Okay, so so going back to your point on EV specifically, we were seeing in, in the market this year where day supply was coming down while inventories were rising, which that would signal strong demand, right? That's that is correct. Uh, that's
0: a that's a that's a good signal. That if day's supply is holding steady while you're increasing inventories, it means the market's absorbing what what you're delivering, and you're not having a pileup of supply that would make you worry about future potential or or future vehicle values. Well, the one exception to that is battery electric vehicles. Their inventory uh, has increased almost 400 percent year over year, even faster than the uh, sales pace, which year-to-date is up about 80%, uh, which means that the day's supply number um, has been accelerating in its increase. And we're currently at a day's supply for EVs above 100 days. Um,
1: so what happens and next? And that's more than twice that we see for the new vehicle market That's very high. I mean, that's yeah, twice like the average. So, so what happens next is what are all the things
0: you normally see when uh, something is oversupplied? Discounting, which you you already mentioned. I mean, Tesla's the 800 pound gorilla in that space, and boy, are they exerting uh, their muscle! And and by the way, from my view, it's working. If there's any clear victor so far this year, um, it's Tesla because they're maintaining their share. Um, yes, they're they're uh, they're making less money per unit that they're selling, but they are not. Uh, struggling the way that we are seeing some traditional brands, and I, I think I think some of that boils down to some of the adoption issues that we're running into. Because if you think about where we are, we basically have been selling battery electric vehicles to the choir, <laughs> to you know, to use the religious analogy, we've been, we've been selling to the people who absolutely have sought them out and wanted to be the uh, early adopters for multiple reasons. Well now we're trending towards a policy that suggests at some point in the future the average American has to buy, has to want and buy a battery electric vehicle and there is a big difference between the choir and the average uh, American and some brands like Tesla how Tesla's brand or other new entrants like Rivian line up uh, with consumers, they're in great position because consumers uh, align with those brands and and think of battery electric. Some other brands, like traditional brands, including high-profile brands with battery electric vehicles like Chevrolet and Ford, don't have quite the same lineup uh, with those consumers. Their consumers are actually not eager to get battery electric vehicles. And you also look at where those... Uh, Brands traditionally have sold, they're in the heartland. They are everywhere. They are not concentrated in California or in the, you know, extreme urban. The coastal, yeah, the coastal cities. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, we're just at an interest. I'm not, and by the way, I'm not conveying that I think, you know, battery electrics don't have a future and won't continue to grow. I think there's just, this is the first of many speed bumps that, that we're hitting as an, as an industry. I actually think the number one issue to consumers is pricing. And we're already seeing what happens when you're oversupplied. Prices come down and that's going to cause more consumers to consider EVs. Um, And some of the other issues like charging networks, those are chicken and egg issues. We solve those issues when we have more battery electrics uh, that are in the market. And uh, for example, companies that uh, can see a profitable Path uh, to making all the investments they need to do with chargers. So
1: uh, some of those other things I think better. Everything you're saying makes sense, right? Like if we're going to see more discounts like with EV specifically, who do you think are going to be the winners and losers here? Right? Like is Tesla the winner and everyone else the loser, or what does it look like? Well, in in the short term,
0: I definitely think from a branding perspective that Tesla is winning uh, this this inning or this quarter or what whatever sports analogy you you want to to put at it. And it's really hard, you know. If you look at the longer term forecasts, we've got we've got pipeline supply directed forecast out to twenty forty, and at no point does Tesla not have the top market share uh, in in that forecast for EVs. So, yeah, of course, their market share erodes over time, and at in by the year twenty forty, some other brands like Toyota will be much closer to them. Uh, in, in terms of their share of the market. But Tesla uh, is is a strong incumbent that I would not bet against. Uh, and I think this year, again, is living proof uh, that that they are doing well. Um,
1: what do you say, and by the way, what do you think about Toyota's like wait and see approach on EVs? I
0: personally think it seems to be working well. Uh, when I talk to their dealers, you know, to a person, they like that strategy. They think it lines up with what they're Customers are seeing, uh, the market in general is seeing uh, the most strength for hybrids. And uh, high, that path and having an established expertise in making hybrids work, um, I think historically has been good for Toyota uh, and, and will continue to be a strength. But they're also highly rumored to, to be near announcing something uh, with solid state batteries that yeah. could really change the, the whole battery electric landscape. And oh, by the way, what's the one brand with real experience with hydrogen, uh, which is, you know, the other fuel that would be would help to address some of the range and and other use cases like for medium and heavies. Um, So, uh, you know, Toyota is definitely one that I think uh, for a variety of reasons has to be viewed as as a a long term uh, strong performer here. The rest, I would say, it's it's sort of a mixed picture. You're going to have some growing pains because some brands are going to have to work harder to sell the same number of vehicles because their traditional customer is not an easy sell uh, in terms of where they live and and uh, their orientation towards accepting battery electrics. Um, so there's, I think, some brands are going to, are going to struggle. Um, <laughs> every brand is in this game. Every brand has, has multiple models in the pipeline.
1: Uh, some are more aggressive than others. You're saying it's like EV models specifically, right? Yes. Got yeah. it. I wanna flip back for a second to the used side. We know that here, like you just mentioned, on the new side we're we're seeing the state supply increasing very much on the on, with EVs uh, with certain brands. But the average used car is up like I think 45% or so since 2019 pricing roughly, correct me if I'm wrong there, it's like 40, 45%. Are we going to see this like slow but steady decline in used car prices? Or is this short supply going to just buoy prices and used cars are not coming down? Like you might as well forget about it if you're in a market for a used car. Where are we at? Yeah. I mean, my my
0: view is that we are very close to what a balanced market price level uh, suggests where we should be. And uh, in other words, what I'm expecting to happen from this point forward is more traditional de- depreciation happening and no more price correction happening in the, in the used vehicle market. And uh, the reason why we're more likely to trend in that direction is because we still have a scarcity of vehicles available. Uh, and it's especially true now more so in the used vehicle market uh, than, than the new vehicle market. And that scarcity doesn't get solved for at least three more years um, because we basically can't sell the same number of used retail vehicles in 2023, 24, 25 because we just don't have the flows coming through the wholesale market, either through physical auctions or, or other platforms because of the lack of leased vehicles, the lack of rental vehicles. Uh, lower levels of repossessions, other things that basically fundamentally drive what's available for dealers to sell uh, retail. Uh, So it's going to be, the supply is going to be uh, limited. But yet on the demand side, this summer is living proof of the situation that as we simply see used vehicle values come down, we create demand. Because we've had thousands of people priced out of the market and uh, we hit the peak in used interest rates in late March while the banking crisis was going on. And it's one of the positive factors that has certainly not, got, not only not gotten worse, but has actually gotten better for the consumer since then. Yes, we did see interest rates drift up in August, but to start September, uh, used rates are trending down again. We're, we're more than a quarter of a point off of the peak for the year. But most importantly, wholesale prices came down strongly in April, May, June, and July. And then that started to trickle into the retail market, especially more so in June and July and into August. So suddenly consumers who were looking for a price point, looking for a specific monthly payment, started to see it. And what happened? Sales started to pick up. And we were seeing it loud and clear in our V-Auto data starting in early July, and it's only progressively gotten better uh, as we got through uh, August. And I would argue it's, it's proof that when you're in a tightly constrained market and you have no, no other big negatives happening, like a recession unfolding, if the consumer is employed and it's just a matter of affordability, then normal
1: depreciation is going to create buying opportunities. It's just a matter of time. What is normal depreciation? Like, what do you expect to see in a normal year on a used car? On a specific
0: vehicle, it gets complicated when you look at averages like the Manheim index, but on a specific vehicle, you should see around 10 to 12% depreciation in an average year on an average car. New Brand new cars tend to uh, uh, lose more. Older middle-aged cars tend to have a, a period where they lose the least amount. But over time, it magically starts to average 12%, uh, 10 to 12% down, down a year. And we've definitely not had normal depreciation for uh, se- several years. We also weren't driving as much too. And if you think about depreciation, what fundamentally two factors cause depreciation, Man. mileage and time. Because time, you know, things get old. It's not quite as shiny and new. Uh, you know,
1: all of those factors. So let's talk about the other element here that might uh, have a adverse impact on depreciation, the strikes. What is going on with these strikes? First of all, do you think it's going to happen? Which I personally based on, you know, all the information I've been reading and consuming, I think it will, but I want to hear what you have to say. And then second of all, if it does happen, what do you think will be the impact on the entire car industry?
0: Yeah, I I Definitely think it will happen. I see the parties okay. as being so we aligned there, <laughs> so too too far apart, uh, and with too much both sides believing they have too much to lose um, to sort of compromise uh, early in this process. So then it becomes a function of well, well, then how broad is the strike, and how long
1: does it last? Um, and, and that... quickly I, I just I want to chime in for anyone in the audience that, that's not aware of this. I just I doubt anyone is, but just in case, United Auto Workers, right? Workers that produce cars here in Detroit. So they have been, you know, pretty much saying that they're going to be striking. They want increased pay and other things, a so shorter work week or whatnot. You could Google it and get all this information. But the long story short here is this could, you know, hinder or completely stop all new car production, right? Which obviously would be a bad situation because again, we would get into shorter situations. All right. Back to you.
0: <laughs> that's right. It it would reverse a bit of the progress we've made, or or potentially maybe at best just simply postpone further improvement. Um, so, but that's where how broad the strike is, because effectively the UAW only really impacts the traditional domestic brands. So, uh, the question is, do they strike one or all three, or a combination? Um, the the I, and I'm not an expert on, on the labor market, but from people that I truly respect and, and I think, uh, you know, have their finger on the pulse, uh, the, the odds on favorite, uh, to, to have a strike is Stellantis, uh, followed then by GM and Ford is probably below 50% probability of, yeah, of Ford, having. Ford
1: just put out this video. Did you see it by any chance? Did you see no. their little commercial? No, they just put out this commercial, like, I don't know, it felt like propaganda or something, but it's on their Twitter page. I was like, hmm, interesting. It looked, it was, it was a bit rosy. Like, I, let's just put it like this. Based on what you're telling me right now, that aligns with what they put out because it's a very rosy picture, which it's, you know, based on what I've been seeing and hearing, I was sort of surprised that they would put out something that rosy in this type of, you know, 10 days before their production is potentially not going to be working anymore. So anyways. Well, they're hoping that it, they keep those odds low. um uh-huh it's not not unlike
0: a political ad uh, in election season I, I would yeah. I would argue what it sounds like so then if you think about it, none of the other brands that sell in the US are impacted by this so historically when strikes happen, it really doesn't have a material impact on the aggregate sales numbers uh, the last people big just strike flock to happened, other brands or something yeah people, other brands do better uh, in those timeframes uh, and, and take positions. So the last big strike for the UAW was against GM. It lasted over 40 days. Uh, in 2019, uh, I challenge you to look at the, the sales numbers and and find when that happened, because you won't see it in, you won't in see the numbers. It. Mm-hmm. But that was also a market that was already oversupplied um, and had plenty of inventory on the ground for both GM brands and, and other brands. Um, so, you know, this time could be different because we are coming out of the, the, uh, the most constrained market we've we've ever been in. Um, so I'm not saying that we won't necessarily see some, some impact. Where it would probably impact us the most uh, is one, no longer seeing inventory grow um, and starting to see day supply contract a bit Along with that, we would we would expect to see incentives no longer growing. Now that hasn't happened through August, as I mentioned, we're up over hundred percent in incentives year over year in the month of August. So I think it's going to be first apparent in like uh, the incentives that are being offered. Um, you know how many low APR deals are being offered. I would expect uh, all the manufacturers that aren't deliberately trying to gain share in this period. Uh, to potentially become a little bit more conservative, uh, but mostly it's it's the dealers, it's the dealers with the stores for the brands
1: that are being disrupted uh, that that face uh, the biggest challenges. Do you think the the UAW United Auto Workers? Do you think they're they're maybe like overplaying their hand? I mean, if you said Stellantis, they have the most inventory in the market right now. Like, are they sitting in their boardroom, like kind of chuckling, like cool, like let's take a thirty day break here? get supply levels back down, you just buy them time, they're not under pressure. Like how do you view that? Well,
0: I, I think they, I think the UAW has some strong arguments behind what they' they're looking for uh, in terms of, of restitution of some uh, of some pay and, and benefits that were cut uh, you know back in the Great Recession. Uh, and essentially, looking at uh, lack of progress that they've experienced for for quite some time, you you can argue that that they definitely had a, have a reason uh, to be hol- holding out for more. Now, deliberately choosing Stellantis, um, I don't know the details of of the contract specifically uh, with with Stellantis and, and and why Stellantis first, but part of the reason why Stellantis is so well supplied right now, I think, has been. Preparing for this deliberately, uh, being focused on uh, having something to sell, and knowing that they would most likely have a disruption uh, come this fall, Stellantis was being conservative. I mean, they've ha- they've been what I would characterize relative to the market as oversupplied all year long, uh, and they have not been super aggressive with incentives, uh, or financing deals, or leasing, or selling into fleet. Um, they've done some of those things periodically, but they've definitely been building up a war chest of inventory uh, to be able to leverage in this situation. so it's it's two groups, each with war chests, each with, in some cases, someone argue existential reasons to be fighting. Um, and by the way, one of those key reasons that both is worried about are is electric vehicles <laughs> because certainly. Well, the UAW is concerned that unless they get concessions and agreements from the manufacturers uh, that that future electrified plants will be unionized, that some of those plants uh, will not be unionized because uh, building an electric vehicle is less work. It's less complex. It doesn't take as many uh, workers. You're working right up against companies like Tesla, uh, that are not unionized, uh, and, and from that perspective, um, you know, potentially have a, have a cost advantage. So you can, you can see why both sides are very worried about it. Cause if the future eventually becomes 80%, a hundred percent electrified, then what is the UAW's role if none of those factories, um,
1: so, are so union? yeah, I mean, so, so let's say for a second, right. So, uh, strike happens, you know, we don't know how long it will be, but let's just say it starts with Stellantis. You said people go flock to other brands. Are what are we going to see in Q4? Are we going to see inventories decline, prices start rising again, or at least you know fewer discounts and rebates? I would I would expect that to be the case in in
0: a, in aggregate. Um, I certainly would would expect to see no no further progress on on the SAR. Um, I would expect the SAR to. You know, have some of its lowest sales paces of the year uh, for new
1: new vehicle sales, uh, and just for people that don't know, like SAR being the the amount of new new vehicles that are sold in a year, pretty much. Yeah, it's the it's the seasonally
0: adjusted annualized rate for every month that essentially tells yes. you if you kept that up for an entire year, uh, this is what your your pace would be. And we are pacing right now. What's the number? Year to date, fifteen four uh august was one of the slowest months uh since the very beginning of the year at 15 15 and
1: what what was 2019 like eighteen, eighteen million 18 million or so uh 17 right on the dot 17 got it okay and last so 138 138 2022 what was we 2021 yeah. uh it was it was a little bit higher i think it was 141 got it so 138 was like the bottom at least for now yeah hopefully wow um a lot a lot of moving pieces all right so before we jump into the state of the lending market a, a lot of requests for like lending and interest rates and stuff like that is very interesting a lot of people are you know really curious about that uh but before we jump into that like give us some give us some favorite buys like wh- wh- where are you seeing deals right now I mean you have your figures on the pulse here um but like where where are you seeing deals for consumers like what's the what cars right now would you recommend to a friend if they're like hey I'm looking to get a good deal right now on a car what is it
0: well, electric—the <laughs> best price electric. for almost any brand, um, you know, that has been offered—and you're far more likely to see incentives. Um, what's interesting: the tax credit, the IRA created a really big. The way the IRS interpreted the rules in the IRA created a very big loophole that more vehicles are available to get the tax credit if they're leased um, than not but it's at the discretion of the finance company doing the lease on whether or not they actually apply it. And so far we're not seeing consistent evidence that all brands are aggressively uh, pursuing that. So I would be looking at uh, leasing offers because we are seeing lease offers improve um, and they tend, uh, that, that tends to be a place that manufacturers will go first before they go to more cash on the hood or, uh, deliberately cutting prices, um, you know, in, in the marketplace. Um, I think we're seeing more buying opportunities and more discounting, um, all summer long, uh, in the luxury market. Uh, so I think you're in much better shape if you're, if you're a traditional luxury buyer to be looking at luxury. And again, uh, I I would be looking at leasing first, uh, as potentially a place, uh, where, uh, the manufacturers are, are getting, getting more aggressive. Um, you know, I can also highlight where I wouldn't start looking, uh, if you're purely looking for a Toy- deal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Toyota is the, the least supplied and, and year to date has been, uh, the least amount of, of discounting that's out there. But historically Toyota always been that way. Uh, so if instead you look at it as, uh, by you're no longer paying a premium, um, I'm actually hearing some individual Toyota dealers tell me that for the first time in August they're 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 uh, paying they're selling vehicles closer to invoice uh, than sticker. Toyota dealers, yeah, yeah, wow. Uh, so, I
1: what we, cars are those? Are we talking Corollas or? <laughs>
0: I think it was a broad mix uh, across the board. And um, again, if you think about the situation, Toyota finally has supply. And if that's happening with Toyota, then what do you cascade down to the competing brands? My uh, guess is if you're in the market for uh, for a vehicle, then right now before the strike uh, potentially starts to change behaviors, the first couple of weeks of September, you know, it's a lot of people tell the folks not to buy until the last week of the month, but, uh, that's actually not true across the board in terms of, of getting the best deal on a vehicle. Actually, you can quite often get some of the best financing deals early in the month. Um, so why is that? Um, I'm not, I'm not certain why that's the case, but what, what I, what I tend to see in the data is that people who buy in the first week of the month tend to be the people that are most, um, actually price sensitive looking for specific new programs that are coming out and they seem to pull the trigger so you disproportionately get people who are who are hunting for like specific programs and and uh, financing
1: deals as opposed to just uh, negotiating interesting for the- yeah yeah maybe it could be you know with like people getting paid or something and you know they're the more kind of budget conscious people so they just got paid and they're going to use the money towards a vehicle we've yeah. definitely seen that on like you know, people get paid Fridays and stuff. You see an uptick of just, you know, consumer traffic on Fridays, right? People get paid, yes. come just, you know, buy a car, so. All right, let's talk about um, lending. So what is the deal with lending right now? Um, and just kind of walk us through, if you can, repossessions, delinquencies, right? I did look at some Cox Automotive data. You know, looks like we are from a delinquency persp- or repossession perspective back to 2019 levels, I want to say, but I'll, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you kind of give us the, the lay of the land there. Yeah.
0: So credit has been... is
1: the market melting or are people overreacting?
0: <laughs> the market is not melting. Um, I, I I will definitely uh, sort of uh, call that out uh, specifically. If anything, the market is simply normalizing in in some key metrics like defaults and re- and repossessions, and we're not even we're not even back to twenty nineteen levels uh, with with the th- those activities. W- um, what is that number? Can you share that exact number with us? Sure. Um, so the default rate, for example, and, and that's, that's what matters the most because a, a loan has to be in default before a repossession can happen. Um, and we look at Equifax data uh, every month uh, to judge how auto loans are performing. And uh, year to date, we've got a uh, default rate in 2023 that is 2.5% and it was 2.9% uh last uh in 2019. Uh last year it was 2.2% um up from an all-time low in
1: 2021 of 2%. So 2.5% of all auto loans in the market are in default and that's below 2019 levels of 2.9%. Okay, got it. So and that's well that's below 2019 which is decent but what about S&P Global put out this data, which was like percent of ABS loans, 60 plus days delinquent. Um, and they showed that we are at the highest rate since 09. We're actually higher than 09. It's at about five and a half percent roughly. Talk to us about that. What is that? So that's that's been where
0: we've seen more evidence of stress has been in delinquencies. 30 and 60 day delinquencies on auto loans have been at record levels every month this year for the specific month. There's strong seasonality in delinquencies. Uh, people are, are usually the furthest behind in January, uh, coming after the holidays and pre-tax refunds. And then when tax refunds hit, delinquencies fall because people are using the tax refunds to catch up. And then we start to see delinquencies rise again. So we have been seeing delinquencies pick back up. Their pace of growth, though, slowed in the month of July. And I'm anticipating in the month of August uh, for, uh, for there to be less growth in, uh, severe delinquencies, uh, but from a total amount of people that are behind 30 to 60 days, uh, it is definitely at historic levels. Uh, we've got data about 2006 and it's the worst July, uh, compared to uh, any July back to 2006. Um, so but what, what we're not, not seeing happen is people are falling behind 30 or 60 days, but they're not, they're, they're curing their situation.
1: And, and that was going to be my next question to you, right? Like, yeah. what are these loan extensions? Like, that's a cheating. Like, how can you just <laughs> extend a loan? Like, what is this? <laughs> Explain this to me. Because I I did not come from this world, right? So I view this like so simplistically, right? A loan is delinquent. How can you, or it's about to go into default. How can you just extend that? Or is that just the bank saying, hey, we don't want to take that. We don't want to realize that loss yet. Or what's the deal? Go ahead. Well, two two
0: two things. And it's actually key to understanding why this is actually a symptom of inflation versus a symptom of absolute distress that leads to further problems and credit uh, really evaporating in, in the auto market. Um, usually delinquencies are high when people are losing their jobs. People are not losing their jobs. People, uh, We have, I mean, yes, the unemployment rate ticked up in the month of August, but it was because more people came into the labor force. We've actually added a, a, over 4 million more people people to the uh, payroll rolls uh, since the pandemic. And uh, we've had historic, you know, beyond 50 year lows of uh, the unemployment rate. And most importantly, for every unemployed person, there's one and a half jobs available uh, to them, which is leading to above average wage growth. So usually lenders are, are worried when people are losing their jobs. And you don't cure somebody who's sixty days behind, uh, and extend their loan or uh, come up with a new payment plan uh, for them uh, in, in circumstance when when they're not gain, gainfully employed. Um, so that's a key difference. The other difference is vehicle values. As we were sharing, vehicle values have not and will not go back to the levels that they were in twenty nineteen, um, where we actually see. Uh, loan vintages. Uh, loan in the in the loan performance world, people talk about vintages. So it's it's based on what month was the loan created. Um, well, loan vintages for new vehicle loans. There's not a single vintage yet that has an, uh, above that has below average uh, positive equity. Meaning every new loan that's been made. Uh, has basically more equity in it than it normally does at this stage in its life. And Since when though? What time period are you talking about? All time periods. I'm talking all active vintages of,
1: of new loans um, and boiling them okay. down to each month. So people, fund. yeah. So inflation pushed up values. People obviously have more equity in their vehicles. Inflation so pushed the, up values and people yes. have put
0: the most they've ever put as down payments on auto loans over the last three years. Okay. So they started from a better
1: position as well. So what does that actually mean? Like, does that just mean that banks are okay with extending your loan because they know you have so much equity in that car?
0: And, and yes, I believe in the cases that uh, lenders are actually doing that, but it, it, it often also means that consumers can cure their own situation and sell the vehicle. And you've got more dealers buying directly from consumers. You had give me the van on. You know, you've got all of these venues to potentially capture the equity uh, in the vehicle uh, that are that that's far easier for consumers. So fundamentally, I think that and being employed and having above average wages uh, are causing consumers to sort of cure their situation either with the lender or or by their own activities. We do see problems with where there are, are problems with loan vintages are used loans made in the second half of 2021. And virtually all of 2022, they have above average defaults. Uh, they have below average equity in their vehicles because those people bought at the peak of used vehicle prices and have seen above average depreciation uh, since then. So that reduces the options that those consumers have either in the marketplace or with the lender.
1: Does that pose any systemic risk or is that just like some, a vintage that's going to get wiped out and the rest is history? Like- I don't think it. It causes uh, systemic risk um, because
0: what we see with uh, the, the asset-backed securities or uh, the specific lenders is the rest of their portfolio is performing better than normal. So even on an individual lender basis, uh, you're, you're not likely to see defaults even um, kind of get back to, to full normal levels. It would take a recession. It would take a scenario of people losing their jobs in the millions
1: uh, to really cause more more of a systemic issue. Got it. And moving forward from here, right, based on trend, what do you see happening with delinquencies and repos for the next, you know, two to three quarters or at least two quarters? What, what, are, you, what are you seeing there?
0: Well, I'm hoping to see delinquencies no longer go up. Um, I'm expecting that because real wages have turned positive this summer, meaning when you look at wage growth relative to inflation rate, Uh, Most households are now back to a scenario that at the end of the month, they're getting ahead rather than falling behind. Mm -hmm. And if so, I would expect with prioritization for auto, people don't want to lose their vehicles. They know how expensive it is, um, you know, to replace it, especially if their credit uh, gets dinged. Um, I'm expecting delinquencies to improve or at a minimum not get worse. And I'm not expecting defaults to end the year, even back to 2019 levels, but I'm expecting them to slowly move in that direction, which means that, yes, we will continue to see more repossessions um, each week, each month, because we're simply uh, returning to normal uh, default rates from a very low level of defaults. Plus, by the way, we have record number of loans, uh, outstanding. So that alone, even if the default rate was consistent, you would would see... um, more defaults happening and more repos happening purely as a function of the of the population
1: all right so let i want to i want to kind of sum this up super simply right so first of all if if you're in the market for a car you said look for evs because they're from a deal perspective those are the best deals in the market right yes great and then use car outlook next three to six months
0: what do you see there I think many people should continue to see lower prices on used vehicles. So it's going to open up opportunities to buy if you're looking for a specific price point or a specific monthly payment. Where the action seems to be the most this year, the part of the used car market that's been strongest are on certified pre-owned vehicles. And those can be officially from manufacturers, but I would say many dealers also offer their own certified program. And in in many cases, that's a super win for a consumer because even though the vehicle's uh, advertised price may be higher than a non-certified unit, when you factor in what you're getting with an extended warranty in many cases and with what is uh, most of the time a much better interest rate, uh, you end up with a monthly payment uh, that more than compensates uh, for the uh, you know, higher price paid. So it's a, it's a win-win for the dealer and the consumer a lot. All
1: right. So, so give us the rest of your takeaways, a- like anything else that we missed, right? We spoke EVs, we spoke Teslas, we spoke strikes, uh new car, used car, lending. What am I missing?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, looking out the horizon, you know, we're constantly trying to figure out what's going to happen next week, next month, and yeah. uh, the next five hours. <laughs> um, and I think the worst is behind us. Um, I'm increasingly optimistic that we'll avoid a recession for the economy. I think the consumer remains resilient because of the labor market, and I think we can thread the needle um, and and make it through. If so, the vehicle market is past its worst point in every channel. And our outlook has growth in every channel, uh, meaning every sales Channel Whether you're a franchise dealer, an independent dealer, looking at the used market versus new, all of it has growth in the years ahead. But I would argue it's a mixed story because when you look at it, what we're going to take is five years to get us back to 2019 levels of transactions. So competitively, if you're a dealer in the marketplace, it's actually going to be just as hard, if not harder. We're supply constrained on used vehicle inventory, so a lot of dealers, especially franchise dealers, have enjoyed tremendous growth in the used market. And the playing field is going to be a little bit more level between independent uh, dealers and franchise dealers over the next several years, unlike the environment we've had for the last five years that has decidedly favored franchise dealers uh, at the expense of of independent dealers. why do you think it's going to be a bit more level though? Because of the age of vehicles that are available to sell in the car park, what we're missing are vehicles that are less than five years of age, which is precisely what franchise dealers sell. And what we have millions more of available, you just need to get the consumers to sell them to you or trade them in, are vehicles that are more than five years of age. And so for franchises to even maintain their level of used retail sales They're going to have to sell older vehicles, uh, which is putting them in the domain of competing more directly with independents. And I think some are going to choose to sell fewer used vehicles and they'll be happy because the new market is coming back for them and they're much more profitable than they have been there. And they're seeing profits in other parts of their business. Um, But it's still going to be a
1: rough road for independents. So you think just independents are going to suffer the most?
0: Um, no, I think it, again that inventory uh, leveling out a little bit will help independents um, do better than they than they have because this is their this is their uh, what was it called their flywheel. Um, yep, the th- they can operate and they they know best how to perform. Um, and there's no question that if you cater to a credit challenged consumer, that's where there's pent up demand. Uh, there's been an absence of people buying over the last uh, two years that I think will increasingly come back into the market as we see interest rates uh, come down. And they will come down. I'm not optimistic that we're going to see rates down three full percentage points from where we are today, but I would be willing to bet within two years, we'll be down at least two full percentage points. And that can make
1: a meaningful difference. uh, Do you think... So... What do you what do you have to say to the the higher for longer camp, right? People think rates are gonna be higher or longer. Why do you why do you think rates are gonna come down? Well, I think in terms of Fed policy, I
0: I you have to buy what they're selling right now and believe that they're going to remain high. Yeah. I, I think most most of what I'm seeing from macroeconomists is that the Fed probably won't start cutting until late next year. And when they do, they're probably going to cut rates by about two full percentage points, but it'll probably be gradual, like a quarter a point uh, every quarter or something like that. So it'll take us one to two years to see those rates come down. But use rates are a function of the bond market and the risk premium that lenders are charging in terms of their specific yield spread. And actually, yield spreads have outpaced what the Fed has done this year. Um, So we could see used loan rates come down a half a percentage point or even more Simply if the delinquency rates, uh, start to flatten out and, and improve. And if the economy turns the Got corner it. and there's less uncertainty there. Okay. Start so to that could improve. Yeah. Because lenders are going to be willing. They are often more willing to be more aggressive in the auto market because the collateral is easier to retrieve. Mm-hmm. And if we're proving that vehicle values have no more correction to them again, that just reinforces their. Yeah. Can be a
1: little bit more risk on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love it. Jonathan Smoke, this was great. Very insightful. I think uh, people are going to love it. So any any last thoughts? Oh, just
0: keep it up, guy. Uh, you, you've done the industry and consumers alike a service with this. I enjoy listening to every single one of the podcasts. There's always something I learn. You have to
1: tell us one secret. Do you have a Twitter burner account? Yes or no?
0: A Twitter burner account? <laughs>
1: You're not active. We don't see you active enough. Yeah, you know, I was, you know, sometimes, you know, do a little tweeting and this and that. So I, I do actually have two different
0: accounts because I have to go. let my uh, anger out. But that's typically about <laughs> it's typically about sports teams and not so much yeah, about yeah, the yeah. vehicle market. Fair enough.
1: Listen, if you would have said no, I wouldn't believe you anyway. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, dude, this was great. Thanks so much. And I uh, will talk soon. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show, and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.